You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast about some amazing Black and Latino women in STEM. This new season, in honor of Black History Month, we're celebrating the stories of Black women in STEM. Stay tuned each week for interviews and roundtable conversations because we'll be talking to women in tech, entrepreneurship, finance, and much, much more. Folks, welcome back to another episode of Technically 200. I was already chopping it up with um, our illustrious guest, and I thought, why not get it started? Because we're going to have too much fun, and then our time is going to be up. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you all to Marla Britt Fields. She is a senior technical program manager at Applied Materials. Uh, just a little bit, just a little bit. I'll, I'll try to fit in a little bit, but I, I think... Um, I won't do your, your background justice. Uh, she holds a BS in chemical engineering from MIT. She started working for Applied Materials in 2001, holding multiple roles from process engineer to senior technical program manager over the last 16 years. Um, after getting an itch to explore, Marla ventured outside of Applied Materials for multiple years to work in startup environments. She successfully transitioned to program management roles in metal 3D printing, as well as self-driving vehicles. And in 2020, Marla returned to Applied Materials uh, in her current role as Senior Technical Program Manager, leading new metal deposition and clean technologies. Uh, Marla has been engaged in employee and corporate citizenship work, striving to improve our world around her. And she helped found the Black Employee Network of Applied Materials. Uh, welcome, 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 Marla. Thank you. Good job. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I started reading a long time ago and boom, <laughs> it, it, you know, it just, you, as long as you keep up with it, it there doesn't, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, so before, before we get started, I, I always love to start with, with a question, but my question for you is, um, why are you here today? Um, so one of my passions is girls and minorities in STEM. Uh, and I truly believe in the idea that it's really hard to be what you, what you can't see. So I really try to be out there in any way, shape or form that they will let me so that I can reach more people and see that, yes, there are black people, there are black women, moms, mothers, we are here. Um, and we work in STEM. Um, and not all of us, I, I happen to have a degree in engineering, but not all of us do. There are people who are in HR, in legal, um, and not everybody who works in STEM has a STEM degree. Um, and, and I think it's really important to get that message out there to everybody. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because that is why Code to College, the organization that I co-founded, why we're around, is to promote more opportunities in STEM. And one thing that that I've, you know, I wouldn't say struggled with, but has been a challenge is to figure out how do we communicate that opportunity that exists for students, but in particular girls um, in STEM industries, but outside of specific STEM roles. So could you differentiate that for me? Like wh what is the benefit to being in a STEM industry or even a STEM company, but not in a technical role? Um, if you think of it like, I had a great friend of mine who, who put it this way, um, everybody who loves music can't sing. 
but that doesn't mean that you can't be part of the team that makes an amazing album. Um, and so STEM is the same way, right? There are people who need to be part of that team in order to make your products and your people successful. Um, you need HR, you need legal, you need, you know, you need people who are doing non-STEM activities around STEM. Um, and it's a great opportunity for anyone to be exposed to that. Um, I, I think when people, uh, a lot of times people tell girls, minorities, that they're not good at STEM uh, or that they're better at other things. Um, even if you're better at other things, that doesn't mean that you can't work in STEM. Even if your passion is, I mean, there are people who, who are making events, who are doing marketing, who are pre making slides, who are doing artwork. The, they don't necessarily have a STEM degree, but they're producing STEM material and they're marketing, they're working in the STEM industry. And uh, there are some good salaries in there. Let's be honest, they're, they get paid well. And when we start talking about bridging pay gaps for women and minorities in this country, one of the ways to get there is to get people into these kinds of roles where they can get paid more. The pay, and so the pay is, is the number one reason that I hear when it comes to working in STEM. I mean, what would you say beyond, beyond the pay? Because I even, when I think of some, there are technical companies out there that are not competitive with their pay. That's true. <laughs> So it's like, well, what happens when I land in this role and, and I see another opportunity out there that's outside of STEM and I, and I actually could have been making more. So, I mean, what else would you say to whether it be the younger Marla or uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure all of us would say a lot to our younger selves, but even even um, a young lady who's not considering going into a, a STEM role or a STEM company or a STEM industry what the draw is well it's there's it more than just pay there's a lot of opportunity um to move uh like i said i've moved within a lot of different companies i've worked with startups i've worked with big companies um and so you really get to learn more about business there's a, a huge business side to everything in stem um financial sides when you start talking about startups and learning about how do you, how do you bring money in? How, right? When you're in a startup, what does it mean to be a series B versus a series D? Um, there's a lot of uh, that kind of thing that you can learn um, in the STEM industry, which is, like I said, STEM adjacent. Um, and they can help you in all other fields. It's an extremely transferable skill to every other area. And if you think about STEM, even companies that aren't STEM, like think about the financial industry, like Visa, right? They have a huge group who's doing STEM for them, right? There's, there is a huge background of software engineers that are coding and creating all those apps so that you can pay your bill online and all that kind of stuff, right? But it's not necessarily a STEM industry. So you'll notice that a lot of kind of STEM ideals, a lot of things that are going on in that area are 
are encroaching <laughs> or or found in a lot of different areas. That is fantastic. Well, and you know, you so Marla, you are located where? Are you here in Texas? No, I am in San Jose, California. I work with a lot of people who are in Texas. I'll go Austin. Cool. They get their heat back and everybody warm up and thaw out. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yes, last week was a rough week for us, you know. <laughs> yes, I had some of my team members who I was like, they're like, I, I haven't had heat for a week. And I'm like, why are you on this call? <laughs> what What are you, why? And they're like, well, there's heat at work. So I... <laughs> Talk to me about talk to me about that because I was one of those people. You know, we didn't have you know we didn't have power. We, we didn't have heat. We were under a boil a boil water notice. Which you know, if you're you're familiar with Texas, you, you got no power. You can't boil your water, right? <laughs> Unless you've got some propane, uh, like a propane setup outside. Mm -hmm. And talk to me about the fact that you know you're a mom of of how many. I have one child. I also have a 70, my 77 year old mother lives with me. Um, so I provide care for her. She has a lot of health issues. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel like I have two uh, <laughs> for sure. So, so you've, you've got, you've got two folks depending on you. Yes. And in the midst of this, this, you know, this pandemic, how are you managing maintaining some boundaries because one of the things that i've i've noticed personally and i'm trying to get better at is it actually feels like we should have more time to do work right because we're not commuting we're sitting in front of that computer yet i actually feel like i'm getting even less done which i i think is probably more mental than than actual so so how do you create these boundaries where you are not just ramping up how much you're working just because like you're not just filling in that additional time with more work? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, so throughout the pandemic, it's, it, I wish I could say I was doing it with grace and it was beautifully done and everything <laughs> works wonderfully. It doesn't. Um, in the beginning, I had both my 77 year old mom and a three year old toddler at home with me all day while I was trying to work. I had to actually change my schedule for the first three months of this pandemic. Um, and I would work two hour blocks and I would have to block two hours out of my schedule so that people couldn't, um, couldn't put meetings in there. I wouldn't accept meetings. I would tell them, you know, you can have your meeting, but I can't be there during that time. Uh, Grammy only has two hours with a toddler <laughs> and she needs to take a rest. Um, so then I have to give her a two hour break. So I would work in kind of two hour chunks throughout my day. Um, my husband actually changed his schedule so that he worked on Saturday and Sunday. He's an essential worker. And I took off and took his weekend on Thursday and Friday so that he would be home to help me give me a more normal work day on Thursday and Friday from home uh, while he was going to work on Saturday and Sunday, which means that I had everybody without work on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it, it was really crazy. It was really insane. 
Um, and it's very stressful. Um, our family has been pretty lucky. We've only lost one family member during pandemic, uh, but we had certainly the potential to lose more. My husband had an outbreak at his work where 50% of the people came down with um, tested positive for COVID, including my husband. Um, there's a huge one to be able to uh, quarantine uh, your husband away from the 77 year old mom who, if she gets it, is probably not gonna make it. And then keep everybody, including a now four year old, masked 24 hours a day, seven days a week and separate from each other yet in the same house. Like <laughs> that was the most probably stressful two weeks of COVID so far, uh, <laughs> I would say, um, trying to, to navigate that. I actually ended up taking time off of work because I was like, I can't work full time and keep everybody separate and masked and wipe all the door handles, and, <laughs> right? I mean, it, it's, it's just really overwhelming. So um, like I said, not necessarily doing it with grace, but doing it, you know, hashtag black mom magic. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you have to take time off for yourself. Um, and you, you have to kind of walk away from things. Um, in, in that respect, I think for work side, it means having really good notes, having the ability to hand something off to someone else at the last minute and be like, by the way, this is the most critical thing that you need to take care of for the next week. Peace out. I'm tapping out for a moment, like, <laughs> um, and being ready to do that handoff. Well, I, you know, I, I do want to say, um, you know my condolences for your loss, and I'm 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 glad that your that your your husband has uh, recovered from that. I mean that is that is no joke for sure. And this just this this has been a a year a twelve month period. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 about to pass that. Even the question is how much longer, right? Is it fourteen months, eighteen months before we're back? Yeah, it's like significant event upon significant event within a significant event. And, you know, last year with how, <laughs> as a, as a black, like, what, what is it, what was it like being in your own skin as a black person in 2020, especially post George Floyd? And, and I would say in particular in response to everybody everybody else's non-black response to you <laughs> right uh i am quite used to being the only in a room i i grew up in new england uh where i was a graduating class of 35 the only black person in my class of 35 there was like six of us total in my entire school system <laughs> three families we all knew each other <laughs> right um then i went to mit uh there was 180 uh underrepresented minorities in my freshman class out of about a thousand uh and then i from there i went to tech which the numbers are pretty pretty much the same as my freshman class, I'd say, maybe worse. Um, I spend most of my time in rooms where I am the only 
quite possibly the only woman or almost always the only black woman. Um, so when, when we went on work from home, that was difficult. I had been back in my role for only about six months. So I didn't even necessarily, I just kind of met all my teams. By the time George Floyd and, and all of the protests broke out, um, it was, it was definitely difficult at work. Uh, at that point, I'd been moved on new programs, programs with people who had never seen me. Um, I have been very, I have been, I've tried very much to make sure that I turn my camera on. It's not a normal part of applied culture to turn your camera on in, in videos. I actually created a rule for myself that there were less than 10 people in the meeting that I'd try and turn my camera on so that people could see me and know who I was. Uh, and I will admit that it was very isolating. Um, when you don't know your coworkers, when you can't see them and you don't have that connection, um, and they don't have it with you either, when you're stressed, when you're worried, when you're concerned, um, not just about a pandemic, but about the world that you live in, um, it's hard to have conversations with people you can't see right, through a computer that you, you that aren't, that, <laughs> that almost feel like they're, they're, separate and other from you. Um, I will admit that there was very little conversation for me for a really long time with my coworkers. Um, I think they didn't know what to say and they didn't feel comfortable with saying anything. A lot of times, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, you had a lot of people, you know, in the beginning of a meeting, those kind of first Two or three minutes where everybody's talking and they're like oh hey you know guess what i did today i baked some bread or i went for a walk i'm starting a garden you know what, what's your pandemic routine um but when george floyd broke out it got really silent and no one seemed to want to have those conversations um and or and maybe it could be because of me um once again i turned my camera on they knew that I was a black woman. Um, I think there are three black people. I was the only black woman in our uh, direct division here in Santa Clara. Um, and so it felt extremely isolating. Uh, I, I got to the point where I was having anxiety. I saw my doctor about it. Uh, I was put on some anti-anxiety medication during that time. I know that's not necessarily cool. People, a lot of people in the black community are not big mental health advocates. Um, we have a, a, a pray it out theory, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> doesn't always work for everybody. And, uh, but uh, I had a lot of support from a lot of my friends and a lot of my family when I went through that. What did it feel like? And, and what was your North Star as you navigated that? Because you know, I, I myself, we've got a small organization I'm, and I'm the head of the organization. And so I think it's that's that has its own interesting challenges because I'm setting the culture for the, the organization. And, um, you know, at the time, uh, about a year ago, I was the only black uh, member of our team. And so what we what we say is is absolutely going to be driven by what I say. But how did you how did you navigate those those 
I mean, from I was going to say conversations, but you said that it was silence. So how, how did you how did you navigate that? Um, I started having those conversations, even though they were uncomfortable. Um, and one of the things I did is I I started with my direct group, the the rest of the pro, pro um, the rest of the program managers that I worked directly with. Uh, we actually got together and had a conversation about, you know, here's here's what's going on in my world. And they were just like, oh, wow. Like I thought about, and this was where the conversations got interesting. And they would say, I really thought about how it might be affecting you, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't know where to go with it. And I'm like, well, we're here now. <laughs> Let's have a conversation and we talk about it. Um, for a lot of them, they were, they were white. Um, they were having those little conversations before meetings, right? With them, people were speaking up and were saying things like, oh, did you see that there were protests? Did you, you know, and acknowledging that these things were happening. Whereas in my meetings, meetings that I was in, they weren't. And so it really helped me to have that conversation with them. And it meant that when they were in meetings with me, they knew that it was okay to have them and they helped to even maybe start having them on a virtual level. Um, I will admit that my manager was not prepared probably to have the conversation. Um, he tried, he tried and he, he, he did his best to be supportive, but I think he really wasn't prepared and he wasn't sure what to do with it. Um, he was very like, you know, you got to do, do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. Like, <laughs> um, but I don't think he really knew what he could do to help me. And so I had to very much be very proactive about what I needed at that moment, which was if I needed a mental health day, um, if I you know, needed to log off early or what have you, um, I just had to be very proactive about what I needed to do and, and you know, let him know, hey, I'm blocking, you know, my son is now back at school, but, I'm blocking an hour and a half lunch break because I need to decompress for an hour and a half. Like I, I just need it in the middle of my day. Um, so, and be very protective of that time when you do have your decompression. See, so it's interesting. I, I try to, I try to put myself in the, in the shoes of, of a white person um, specifically in terms of, broaching these types of conversations, right? Without trying to be offensive or come off as ignorant. And I, it's in my experience, typically the folks that I've encountered who are apt to start a conversation, the, there is ignorance that follows. But I don't know that that's, I, I, I do think that there's a difference between willful ignorance and you just try to share your opinion as opposed to, to seek understanding, right? And I just don't know. And so the position I, I try to play is, all right, well, I'm not a woman. And so what happens in those instances where I hear this is a challenge that women say that they face and it's unfamiliar to me. So when, um, you know, I, I hear that women are is something like how they have to in the workplace um, 
combat being overtalked or you know mansplained or even how they're received differently and when i try to think well i if my first instinct is i don't see that <laughs> then then i tr i try to say all right well then you know let not i don't see that but rather tell me more right and so but i also i i don't know how i would even start that conversation if i if i were white right in the same way that if uh i mean i can't think of a of a non-friend that i that i'd be able to spark that any conversation that would be considered controversial with so how would you how would you guide a white person through a conversation for you because i know you're not speaking on behalf of the race but but how would you guide a white person <laughs> I want to put you in that position. How okay. would you be a white person who's trying to broach an uncomfortable conversation about your blackness and black experience? Uh, you're right. It's really difficult to do with someone who you're not friends with, that you don't have a personal connection with. Um, like, like with your boss <laughs> that you may not be connected to on a, on necessarily a really personal level. Um, it can be really difficult. Uh, I've certainly had discussions actually with some of our executive staff that applied uh, on these topics. And one of the things that helps is being vulnerable. Um, if you can walk into a conversation and you can admit that I don't have the answers here, but I'm really here to learn and I want to know more. Uh, that's the best way to broach that conversation. Now, um, even having said that, uh, as I told you before, that I've, I've grown up in a kind of a, a very white world. <laughs> and so I have become quite the connoisseur of uncomfortable white people, if you will. Uh, <laughs> it means that when I walk into a room, I can almost feel it like a vibe um, when someone is uncomfortable, and it has become, now that I'm over 40 years old, almost a natural thing for me to make the room more comfortable with my presence. Uh, like I said, a lot of rooms that I walk into, I'm the only black person, I'm the only black woman. And uh, I'm really trying to make sure that they can have those conversations and that they see me as an open, source to having those conversations so there's it's not just on the white person's part to be able to have it but it's also on my part i believe to be open to it um and to be ready to to have that conversation um now my husband is white so we have some very intense and, <laughs> and serious conversations in my house um because we're raising a mixed little boy um so uh for us i guess maybe it's a little easier because there is the love that we have for each other we're married and we live together every day <laughs> so um but he too has problems and he's very the 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 statement that you used when you said i haven't seen it but that doesn't mean that i don't believe you and that i you know so we have a lot of those conversations where he's like I just don't know. I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know what 
is out there. So you have to tell me, <laughs> right? Um, to some degree, there is, um, you know, the, the spidey sense, like I said, black mom magic, the spidey sense that something's up, something doesn't feel right uh, in a certain situation. Um, we've had conversations about Sometimes, you know, you're going to have to trust my spidey sense, right? <laughs> because, because I've been in more situations where, you know, something might not be quite right. Um, and uh, you're going to have to trust my spidey sense here because you're not going to have it. <laughs> you're not going to have that sense. It's not going to come natural to you. Um, so that's yeah. great that you that's I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's great that you. I mean, because I think some people, that's an important point. Some people of color, a lot of people of color could feel, could be gaslit, right? And it's like, I don't see that. I think you're being too sensitive. Or I don't see that. Maybe you misinterpreted them. But you- I've just, certainly heard both of those as well. <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you draw on that spidey sense that we, that we, you know, people of color have and black people in particular? Yeah, and I think it's come out a lot more since the George Floyd with everything that's going on. Now that people have cameras everywhere, all of a sudden people are going, wait, oh no, that's real. That really is happening. You're not just, you're just not paranoid and crazy, <laughs> right? So now we actually have instances that we can point to and we can say, no, see, when I told you that these kinds of things happen and we have to be careful, now all of a sudden, people are able to actually see that. So that's, I, I think that's definitely kind of changed the conversation. I'd like to, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the, the other side of that, right? Because it is, it has been a challenge. I mean, being a black person challenging period. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is, there is a whole lot of joy being a black person. So I, you know, I don't, I, this is not to say that we are, we are people of trauma we were we are people of triumph, and um, and so the I'd like to hear the other side because rather than making this a sort of the orientation around deficit, what are the opportunities that you've seen as a result of of the last year? Because I mean, Code to College, our organization has seen a significant amount of interest. Um, one because I'm a black founder, right? you know, black led, I'm, I'm the CEO. Um, we're focused on DEI, you know, we're serving black and brown students uh, predominantly. And so, you know, we were, we, we had an upward trajectory, but I mean, the other side, other than, you know, now we're, we're virtual as opposed to live in our program model, we've gotten a lot of intention and support that otherwise we may have continued to get it at a, let's just call it a, a slower pace. So what are some of the opportunities that you're seeing for black uh, people and black professionals as a result of last year? I mean, one of them, so a lot of corporate America right now is trying to hire more minorities. Um, not just more women. You hear a lot of that uh, where they hire more women. They're like, oh, we need to diversify. And then they hire a bunch of white women, right? But they're actually being very intentional about wanting to hire more black and brown people. That, uh, by the way, the greatest proportion of beneficiaries of affirmative action. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and they are, they're coming out and uh, they're, they're trying to find us. They're, they're looking for us um, and they're being proactive about recruiting us. Um, I will say that I've had plenty of companies that have contacted me on my, <laughs> just looked me up on LinkedIn and were like, Hey, your skills look really great. Da, da, da. Um, <clears throat> But uh, I, I, I see that happening more and more recruiting. There's a lot more focus on um, recruiting from, you know, historically black colleges. People are starting to say, hey, maybe we should go recruit there. Maybe we should go um, be looking at engineers from North Carolina State, you know, North Carolina A&T and, you know, these colleges that maybe were overlooked before, whereas everybody was like, I want to go to the MITs and the Stanfords. And now they're like, well, where, where can we get more, you know, black and brown talent? And they're like, yeah, maybe we should go look at FAMU, like, <laughs> right? So um, I think that's one of the really big positives that are coming out of this. And there's a lot more of that, you know, and it helps that our Vice President is, you know, <laughs> shout out to Kama. <laughs> uh, so it, I, I see that coming, and I see them doing a lot more recruiting. Um, and even like there are some companies out there that are doing recruiting on a higher level. So um, they want to get more executives, more board members on these big companies um, that are black and brown folk. Uh, and so those companies that are starting to recruit, that are recruiting for those high level positions are actually starting to look for that talent and have that stable in, the, in their recruiting talent for when these companies come calling. And that's great. Well, that's, that's exciting to hear. And I mean, I really hope it's not a flash in the pan. Uh, that's what I hope. I hope it continues and they, they continue to push for it. Uh, for corporate, it means that they need to start changing some of their some of their values. On on uh, one of the things that is always said in corporate is if it's not measured, uh, then nothing happens. So <laughs> we have to make sure that they continue to measure it and that they're held to those standards. So you know, I think that where you work has has a lot to do with the people that you're surrounded by and, and one of them in particular or some of them in particular are who you're working for, your, your direct managers. And so talk to me about, um, talk to me about what that looks like because I, I myself, I manage a team right now of seven. We're poised to grow pretty significantly over this year. And so I would like to, I would like to be an employer of choice, but I'd also like to be a manager of choice. So Talk to, talk to me about how to make that happen. Um, and, and again, one of the things that I, I, I'd love for you to talk about the nuance of is being a black manager and how you think that, that plays into it. Well, before we get to being a black manager, let's just talk about being a good manager, <laughs> right? Uh, I've had a lot of managers. Uh, at one point I counted, uh, I am a I'm in my 20th year of my career. I have had at least 20 bosses. Uh, that does not mean that I had one every year. Some lasted longer than others. Uh, <laughs> but um, I have a theory about my managers, um, and I call them shovel shit bosses. 
<laughs> these are the managers who I would work for and I would do anything. That means I would even come and do a horrible job like shoveling shit because it is amazing to work for them. And when it's amazing to work for somebody, it's somebody who has your back, who's going to fight for you behind closed doors, who's making sure that you get the recognition for doing that horrible job that nobody else wants to do. That's normally what a shovel shit boss, what a shovel shit job really is, right? It's a job that nobody else wants to do, that nobody, get, that you never get any credit for doing, right? <laughs> Thankless, <laughs> like nobody cares that you're doing the job until things go wrong and then it's just your fault, right? That's the kind of boss, <laughs> that's the kind of job that I'm talking about. And uh, I would say I've had three bosses. I've been extremely lucky. I thought that was a really low number. I started talking to some of my friends about it. Um, and a lot of them are like, no, I don't have a boss who if they called me up and they offered me a horrible job <laughs> and I would be like, yes, I'll take it because I want to work for you. Um, normally they understand your background. They understand, um, your pressures and the thing Big background. Um, <clears throat> They understand, uh, there's kind of two sides to that, I would say. They probably understand what you're capable of. They understand, you know, your degrees and, 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 and what you've done in your past and how, and how you can be better in your future. Um, but they also understand that you have a vision and that I have found that the bosses that I love the most are, are the ones who let me do my job the way that suits me best and suits those around me best. Um, I've actually had bosses that told me, you need to go in that room and you need to yell at them and you need to tell them what to do and da 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 da, da. And I remember looking at him and saying, and I was wanted to say, do you realize that I'm a black woman? If I walk in that room and start screaming and throwing a tantrum, I mean, you can get away with that. But if I do that, do you know what I'm gonna be labeled? And I'm never going to be able to get them to support me in that fashion, right? That's not a boss who understands you and understands your background and understands how you're going to have to do your job. Um, so that's really important. And, and you don't have to, I mean, it's easier, and this comes back to being a Black boss, for someone who is a, a person of color, an employee who's a person of color, you probably understand that intrinsically a bit more than a boss who is white or Asian will understand that for you. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't. Um, I have never had the privilege of working for a boss of color. <laughs> I've always worked for white and Asian, both men and women. Um, uh, as I said, I had three shovel shit bosses. One of them is a, is a woman, white woman, um, and two are men. They were both Asian, actually. Uh, and when they call, I will come running <laughs> because working for them is amazing. Um, there was one, uh, there was a guy who I actually interviewed with. I didn't get the position to, to work with him. Um, but he was absolutely amazing. And the question that I asked was, who is the best program manager 
that you've ever hired? And he told me, oh, it was this guy. And I said, well, can you tell me why he was so good? And he didn't tell me because he spent tons of hours in the lab, tons of hours with his program team, but he actually knew that what made a program manager great was their communication and their ability to communicate with people and get them to understand and move the entire team toward a single goal, right? And I was like, he gets it. He understands the role. And then when I asked him, where is this guy now? And he's like, oh, well, he still works for me. And I'm like, really? And he's like, well, we promoted him. And then he didn't seem to really like that. He wanted to go back and he wanted to be an individual contributor again. He didn't want to be a manager. And I was like, how did you have that conversation? Being able to be in an interview position with someone and asking these kinds of questions and having them answer them, that's a shovel boss. That's somebody you want to work for because he can answer those questions and he knows how to have a conversation with somebody and say, yeah, maybe you did get promoted a little bit higher. Let's move you back down. If you're okay with that, I'm okay with that. You're the best. And he still says, this is the best program manager I've ever hired. Man, I, I working on it. Got a lot to yeah. aspire to. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's a great, that is a great story to, 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 to end on. Um, and one for, I think for a lot of us to reflect on because we would, though we don't really want anyone to, to shovel. <laughs> I mean, somebody's got to, right? Somebody's got to. Sometimes it's a job that needs to be done. That's how there is to it. And I guess, the, and that's actually at the core of it, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough job, but I mean, if someone can get excited about that tough job that nobody else wants to do because they're doing it for you and, and how you're managing, I mean, that is, that's, that's inspiring. Wonderful. Wonderful. Marla Britt Fields, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for, for lending us your time today. Yes, and thank you for having me, Matt. Absolutely. Uh, folks, join us next week for another episode of Technically 200. I'm your host, Matt Stevenson, and until next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Technically 200. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com. Until next time.